welcome. Um, for those keeping score, we're up to AUL4 in the Anatomy of the Upper Limb, number four, which I've entitled The Practical and Surgical Anatomy of the Brachial Plexus. And there's specific reasons for that. Um, I want to point out at the start, if I may, our crowdfunding objectives with Anatopod to um, improve our equipment, professionalise the studio sessions and convert to an audio-visual format. Um, you can contribute, as you'll see in the notes, on patron.podbean.com slash anatopod, that is A-N for Nelly, A-T-O-P-O-D, anatopod, all in capitals. And uh, any donation, no matter how small, is greatly appreciated and acknowledged. And I want to know what topics you want uh, covered. Um, I, I want to thank, uh, at the start, if I may, Don from um, uh, Ontario, uh, who communicated with me. He's been sending a number of communications this week, really about some really interesting connections between anatomy and art. Um, and some very new uh, connections for me. So we've had a great uh, dialogue, and I also really appreciate his uh, comments regarding uh, creating a podcast on fascia. fascia. I'm not really a, a fasciophile, I think, um, but uh, I think it'd be a good idea, really, to create a podcast on this. Perhaps that's something we can do together collaboratively, later in the year. Uh, I'll certainly make an attempt to do that. I think it's a really good suggestion. Um, it seems to be a bit of the rage um, at the moment. I need to embed also, I think, this patron badge uh, to make it a bit easier. Uh, but you can simply copy the URL link in our um, uh, notes attached to this, and it's as simple as that. Now, the brachial plexus is important but it's pretty easy. And it's important, I think, in using the anatomy that we know or discover to examine nerve lesions, particularly those in the hand, median and ulnar nerve lesions, which we see in exams so often. But also, I think, in understanding how the brachial plexus actually works. And it's easy because of its subdivisions into component parts which explain... Uh, whether a brachial plexus injury is actually reparable, repairable, if you like a term. And I'll outline and explain this as I go, for reconstructable. So, firstly, we understand that a plexus, any plexus, the brachial plexus, cervical plexus, lumbar and lumbosacral plexus, are all constellations of the anterior or ventral primary rami. I often ask, my students, even postgraduate students, that they don't seem to know it. It's basic. Now, the beginning of the plexi is the roots as they come away from the spinal cord. And I'll revisit that a little later in this podcast when we examine injuries of the brachial plexus. At any rate, the normal root levels of the brachial plexus are at C5, C6, C7, C8 and T1. But we know that sometimes the plexus uh, can be what we uh, uh, call prefixed, and sometimes it can be postfixed. And in the first instance, the root levels are higher. That is, in other words, there's more C4 and less T1. 
or in the postfix state, there's less C5 and more T2. Now, would that it would be so simple, of course, the plexus may be prefixed or postfixed, but it can also be expanded, that is, it incorporates more root origins or contracted, that is, it comprises less root origins. Now, that sort of thing is important in understanding the anatomy of individual lesions, so it does have relevance. The brachial plexus is divided into roots, trunks, divisions, cords, and branches. I'll say that again. Roots, trunks, divisions, cords, and branches. Because it's important. Roots we've already met in the prescalene muscle area. We discussed that in the podcast on the head and neck. The trunks appear between the scalenus anterior muscle and the scalenus medius muscles in the root of the posterior triangle. And the divisions, which are anterior and posterior, and which quite nicely go, not surprisingly, into the anterior musculature and the posterior musculature of the arm and forearm, respectively. And these divisions are usually found just under the clavicle. And that effectively divides the brachial plexus into a supraclavicular and infraclavicular component. I want to break off, actually, for the moment and just mention that if you think of where the nerves are running, they embryologically run in the same space if we look at the chest or if we look at the abdomen, for example. When we get down to the chest and we get to look at the intercostal neurovascular bundle, then the nerve runs between the innermost layer of muscles and the internal layer of muscles, in this case the internal intercostal. And it does the same in the abdomen, and that is that it runs between the innermost muscle, the transversus abdominis, and the internal muscle, in that case the internal oblique. And if you imagine that the scalenus anterior and the scalenus medius are also then the most innermost muscles and intermediate muscles um, or internal muscle, then again the brachial plexus runs between those two muscles. Just that they're vertically orientated and in the neck is just a little bit different, but essentially the neurovascular bundle runs in the same muscular level anywhere in the body, whether it be in the neck or in the um, thorax or in the abdomen as so-called thoracoabdominal nerves. And I just thought I'd mention that. At any rate, we're coming back into this and we've said, if I haven't put you off too much, that the divisions are anterior and posterior. And because the arm is structured in that way, the anterior divisions innervate or are the compartment nerves of the anterior compartment of the arm and the forearm, the posterior divisions of the posterior compartment of the arm or forearm, respectively. And so those divisions, as I've said, are just under the clavicle. That effectively divides the brachial plexus into a supraclavicular and an infraclavicular component. And that's relevant, for example, if one has a stab wound to the upper chest or the neck, these things can be different. The cords, by definition, fit around the second portion of the axillary artery. And remember that that's divided by its relationship to the pectoralis minor muscle, so that the second portion of the axillary artery is behind the pectoralis minor. And that's the point where those cords orientate 
to that second portion of the auxiliary artery as defined, so that there's a lateral cord that is lateral to the auxiliary artery, a medial cord that is medial to that part, and a posterior cord that is posterior. That is, the lateral cord lies on the lateral side, the medial cord is medial. In fact, it's often a bit sort of deep, effectively kind of inframedial, and the posterior cord is well posterior to the second portion of that auxiliary artery. Now, that's all important in an auxiliary dissection in breast cancer. We've gone through that before. If we don't dissect above the auxiliary vein, we don't see that auxiliary artery, and therefore we don't ever see in an auxiliary dissection the cords of the brachial plexus. After the cords are then, of course, the branches. And we remember the little reminder of those branches from the lateral cord are three, from the medial are five, from the posterior cord are five. So the trick is three, five, five, which is pretty easy to remember. That's actually all you need to really remember about the brachial plexus. I must say, I like to look in an anatomy book and I like to draw the plexus. And I think... Uh, that helps. When I do that, I remember it pretty perfectly. And some find that difficult. But actually, the lumbosacral plexus, which is more complex, is also pretty easy to draw. And I highly recommend that you spend some time just trying to draw it because it reinforces it in your head. Now, in broad terms, the roots provide segmental nerve supply to the prevertebral and scalene muscles. You can check this out in our podcast from last year for a review, if you like. That was released in late December, and it's entitled the... Uh, pardon me, Dece December 2020. It's entitled The Prevertebral and Scalene Muscles and the Cervical Plexus. For those keeping score, that was AHN, The Anatomy of the Head and Neck, number three. Between the divisions and the roots, the upper two roots unite to form the upper trunk. The middle trunk stays and goes on as it is, a C7, and the lower two roots unite to form the lower trunk. So that's pretty easy. If you're trying to draw that, that's quite easy. So just the upper two roots form an upper trunk. The middle root retains its fidelity by itself and the lower two roots join to form a lower trunk. That's pretty easy. The divisions, as we know, <clears throat> are important anteriorly or posteriorly as innovating the flexor and extensor compartments of the arm and forearm, respectively. At the outer border of the first rib, the anterior divisions of the upper and middle trunks, that's the upper two, unite to form the lateral cord with the anterior division of the lower trunk running on as the medial cord, or at least what by our definition becomes the medial cord. And all three posterior divisions unite to form the posterior cord. And when they embrace the second part, that is the cords of the arteries, they can strictly be defined, as I've already said, as lateral, medial and posterior cords. So it's pretty basic and pretty simple. So there are these different parts of the brachial plexus such that the roots and trunks are that supraclavicular plexus that I spoke about and the cords and branches are the infraclavicular plexus or infraclavicular part. Now that's pretty simple stuff, yes? When we know this simple structure, it's not a difficult business to fill in the branches. 
And to the 355 rule, we can add some other simple facts. That is that there are three branches from the roots, derived from the roots. And there's one upper trunk branch. This one, the suprascapular nerve, can sometimes come from a root. In other words, it can be a little prefixed, if you like, in its origin. Got it? Now, we can look at the supraclavicular part, but what we're saying here is what are the root branches? Now, I'll remind you, in this course of anatomy, we have to contextualise it. Otherwise, we're just learning a sort of disconnected series of facts. Always ask yourself, what does what I'm learning mean? And yes, my friends, what does, why does it matter? Well, it's important here because in a brachial plexus injury, which I'll go into later, the roots are often injured, again, for reasons I'll explain later. And therefore, a root injury tells us that the injury is quite proximal. Indeed, it might be where a root is actually pulled off the spinal cord itself, and therefore, that is irreparable. Actually, we can know that if a nerve that is normally made up of rootlets is injured on testing. And usually it's backed up by a CT or an MR myelogram, which shows where these little rootlets have been pulled off the spinal cord, namely that there are little, sometimes not so little, meningocele's of contrast at this point. So we need to know in this segment of the brachial plexus which nerves are then formed by the rootlets and can we test them? And the answer to that is yes. Now, as I said, there are three in number, and let's go through them. The first is the dorsal scapular nerve, or C5. The next is the nerve to subclavius C5-6. And importantly, the nerve to serratus anterior C5-6-7. Those are the three nerves that come off the roots. Now note that the last one, that nerve to serratus anterior, which is also called the long thoracic nerve, is segmental. And we remember from our consideration of an earlier podcast on the axilla that this mirrors the segmental attachment of the serratus anterior, the medial wall extent of the axilla or the medial extent of an axillary dissection. And we also know that this nerve, the long thoracic nerve, some would call it the long thoracic nerve of Bell, after Sir Charles Bell, a very interesting Scottish anatomist, early 19th century, who actually classified a lot of the central and peripheral nervous system in the way we understand it today. Also a very accomplished and cultured artist, but that's another story. Now these three root nerves come out serially and segmentally, and they pass downwards, behind, in front of, and behind the roots in that order. So we're saying the dorsal scapular nerve, the nerve to subclavius, the nerve to serratus anterior, they pass behind, in front of, and behind the roots in that order. And that's important too for a brachial plexus injury if it's fairly high up, but potentially repairable with nerve grafts. And I'd say this is a minor anatomical point, but it's relevant. The dorsal scapular nerve, we should remember, because it innervates the levator scapulae muscle, but more importantly, it finishes in the rhomboids. And some may call it the nerve to the rhomboids, and that's okay as a reminder. But at the root of the neck, it passes through the substance of the scalenus medius, 
it courses beneath the levator scapulae actually lying on a particular muscle called the serratus posterior superior. And so it innervates the rhomboids on their deep surface and it's often accompanied by the small dorsal scapular vessels. Now, that nerve's important because the rhomboids which brace the scapula can be checked. It's more accurate than getting someone to shrug the shoulders, which levator scapulae will do, but that can also be done by trapezius, so that's not going to help you very much. And clearly, if one cannot brace the shoulders or the shoulder blades, that's a very proximal brachial plexus injury, since the dorsal scapular nerve is given off pretty proximally. The more proximal the brachial plexus injury, the less likely it is to be repairable. Got it? Now, I appreciate the fact that if someone's got a brachial plexus injury and they've got a flail limb or a painful flail limb, they can't actually do what you want them to do, which is brace the shoulders back. And so it's a little bit theoretical, I get that. But there are practical cases where you can look at rhomboid activity. And that may occur, for example, in some people who have an infiltrative brachial plexopathy. And uh, that particularly is a feature of breast cancer, but it's also a feature of lymphoma. I'll come back to that as, uh, uh, later on in the, in the podcast. Now, the next one is the nerve to subclavius, and you can't obviously individually test that. But sometimes, as we remember from, again, from our head and neck podcast, it gives off an accessory phrenic nerve or even a replacement in the cervical plexus if the brachial plexus is prefixed in the way I've defined it. And there, a brachial plexus injury could be associated with a diaphragmatic palsy. That's going to be pretty rare. And that little nerve typically passes down, as I've said, in front of the trunks and also in front of the subclavian vessels. Um, and it can go through sometimes the subclavian vein. It can be injured in a percutaneous um, um, subclavian vein cannulation. And next is the long thoracic nerve. And you often see that in the medial part, as we've said, of an axillary dissection. As I've already said, it segmentally innervates the serratus anterior muscle. And that too is a muscle whose function we can check by getting someone to lean up against a door or a wall and we see winging of the scapula because the muscle is not holding the scapula against the chest wall. And if that's present, the injury to the brachial plexus is, as I've said, pretty proximal and less likely to be repairable. Now, typically with this nerve, given its segmentation, C5 and 6 enter the scalenus medius. They tend to emerge as a single trunk from its lateral border, where in the upper axilla, they're then joined by the C7 rootlet with the nerve typically lying behind the mid-axillary line, which is halfway between the anterior axillary line, a coronal line drawn like a plumb bob below the anterior axillary fold, or between the middle of the clavicle and its lateral end, with the posterior axillary line, a coronal line marking the posterior axillary fold. Now, I get that the mid-axillary line can be used as a landmark, for example, in a thoracosynthesis or for placement of the V6 precordial lead in a 12-lead ECG. But in practice, I don't use the mid-axillary line for an axillary dissection, and I've often found that the long thoracic nerve is a lot more anterior to that line than you think. So I suspect it's far more often injured in part for this reason 
than we imagine. It's worth going around and looking at patients who've had axe dissections or mastectomies plus axe dissections, and you'll find a higher incidence of weeing of the scapula than you have seen reported or thought imaginable. We have one other objective here, and the upper trunk branch, as I've said, the suprascapular nerve. And that's given off in the depths of the posterior triangle of the neck. And it runs backwards under trapezius. It passes under the transverse scapular ligament in the suprascapular foramen, or that's been converted from a notch into a foramen to supply the supraspinatus muscle. And then it hooks round the lateral aspect of the spine, that rather blunt end, to innovate the infraspinatus. And this sizable nerve also innervates the shoulder joint. Don't forget that point. Now we now come to the infraclavicular part of the brachial plexus. And these are the chord branches. And the rule, as I've said, is 355. And that's really, I think, all one has to remember. But anyway, let's go through it. In the lateral chord, there is the supply cutaneously and muscular to the anterior arm. Uh, now, the three of this includes the lateral pectoral nerve, which we've already met, the musculocutaneous nerve, and the lateral root. Yes, I know, it's not a great term because we've already used it, the lateral root of the median nerve. Perhaps we would call it the lateral component of the median nerve might be better. The lateral pectoral nerve, to recap, runs through the delta pectoral groove, through the clavipectoral fascia and supplies the pectoralis major through the myotomes C5, 6 and 7. And there is a communication, as we know, across the front of the axillary artery to the medial pectoral nerve, and that arc has some supply to the pectoralis minor muscle. The lateral pectoral nerve does not have a cutaneous element. So the lateral pectoral nerve comes out medial to the medial pectoral nerve, and it does so because it comes from the lateral cord. The medial pectoral nerve is lateral to the lateral pectoral nerve. It does so because it's the medial cord of the brachial plexus. Now, the musculocutaneous nerve, which is coming from the lateral cord, is actually pretty well named. I like the name of it. It's the nerve of the anterior compartment of the arm. And it's got quite an extensive cutaneous element that runs right down over a long distance down to the wrist. And it has a homologue in the lower limb, what we used to call the posterior cutaneous nerve of the thigh. It's now called the posterior femoral cutaneous nerve, which has an extensive cutaneous supply down the back of the thigh to the mid-calf skin. So there's some homology there. Now, the musculocutaneous nerve leaves the outer side of the lateral cord and it directly pierces the coracobrachialis muscle, which it supplies, usually C5 and C6. And then it runs out laterally to supply the biceps brachii and underneath the brachialis muscle. And at the lower end, it becomes the lateral cutaneous nerve of the forearm. And that typically splits at the elbow, sometimes above it, into a volar branch as far as the ball of the thumb. And there may be some communication with the palmar branch of the median nerve and even some filaments with the superficial radial nerve. On the dorsal side, 
there can be some communication with the radial nerve. So it's a, a volar and dorsal large nerve going right down to the wrist. So it truly is a musculocutaneous nerve. It's very nicely labelled. The lateral root, and there it is, that again, that term, the lateral root of the median nerve is the C567 continuation of the lateral cord. And of course, it's joined by the medial root of the median nerve, C8T1, and those two roots typically embrace the artery, and that can vary in position slightly, usually running a little inframedial to the artery and then running laterally as it runs down the arm before running medially in its relation to the brachial artery, making it more vulnerable with, uh, say, a shard of glass coming into the cubital fossa. We'll discuss that when we look at the cubital fossa. But it means, because of the relationship of the nerve to the artery in front of the artery at the cubital fossa, that if the artery is injured, arterial injury in the cubital fossa, then usually the median nerve is injured as well. We'll get into that in another podcast. Now, branches from the medial cord, as we know, are five in number. And here we've already met the medial pectoral nerve, but it includes also the medial root of the median nerve, which we've met, the medial cutaneous nerve of the arm, the medial cutaneous nerve of the forearm, and the main thing there on the medial side, the ulnar nerve. Now, that's not too hard to remember. There's a strong medial nerve supply of the arm, cutaneous. And you want to remember also that contributing to the medial aspect of the arm, its cutaneous supply, is also the intercostobrachial nerve of the axilla. And that's running across the floor of the axilla. And um, as I've said also, you've then got the most medial musculature of the forearm, which is all supplied by the ulnar nerve. Now, to recap, the medial pectoral nerve is C8T1 that comes away behind the axillary artery and it runs through the substance of the pectoralis minor to supply it. When you lift up the pectoralis major, either in an operation or in the cadaver, you can see it running through the pectoralis minor muscle straight into the pectoralis major. And this is the area where the so-called interpectoral nodes, or the nodes of rotter, lie. And this nerve innervates the lower costal pectoralis major muscle fibres. And like the lateral pectoral nerve, the medial pectoral nerve has no cutaneous element. That's another little question that people sometimes ask. The medial root of the median nerve we've met already, and that crosses the axillary artery to join the lateral root, as I have mentioned. And then we've got some cutaneous nerves, the medial cutaneous nerve of the arm. It's a small but recognisable branch, and it's the smallest and most medial branch here running in front of the axillary vein and doing precisely what it says, supplying the medial aspect of skin over the upper inner arm. The medial cutaneous nerve of the forearm also does what it says. It's actually a relatively large nerve to fill in the space on the medial aspect of the arm and a disc of skin over the inner forearm. And it does so by running down over the front of the ulnar nerve. And then you're left with the ulnar nerve, which is quite big. It's a little bit deeper at its level, and it's the largest branch of the medial cord. 
It's located between the vein and the artery behind the medial cutaneous nerve of the forearm. So it's a little bit deeper, sometimes underneath the artery as well. And at this point, it's sometimes, as I said, posterior. You have to lift the artery up to actually see it. Now, this nerve receives C7 fibres from the lateral cord as a branch. And most people, uh, these are the fibres or the nerve fibres that innervate the flexor carpi ulnaris, that is, its motor fibres. And that's one of the guy ropes of the wrist on the ulnar side that acts in concert with the extensor carpi ulnaris and both have a similar sort of attachment to the olecranon and the subcutaneous border of the ulna. So that you've got these ulna guy ropes on the inner aspect of the wrist, the flexor carpi ulnaris, the extensor carpi ulnaris, and they'll act together to medially uh, rotate the wrist, if you like, or so that your, your hand moves inwards. On the radial side, you've got the same sort of guy ropes on the, the extensor and flexor side of the wrist as well, and that's the flexor carpi radialis and the extensor carpi radialis longus and brevis. And the reason why you've got two extensors on that side to mirror the flexor is that the insertion of the flexor carpi radialis, the base of the second and third metacarpals on the flexor side, is identical to the insertion, uh, respectively, of the extensor carpi radialis longus and the extensor carpi radialis brevis, second and third metacarpals on the dorsal or extensor side. And so, as you can see, the system's set up that you've got these kind of guy ropes or pull ropes, which not only extend or flex the wrist, but they uh, medially or radially, ulnarwards or radially, pull the wrist in or out in that way by acting in concert. That's the way that it's set up. Now, to come back to this, as I've said, those C7 fibres which innervate the flexor carpi ulnaris come around and join the medial cord of the brachial plexus. They're coming, in fact, from the lateral cord. In about 5% of cases, that C7 FCU, flexor carpi ulnaris component, is actually handed over from the median nerve to the ulnar nerve, not at the brachial plexus level, but in the forearm. And that's called a Martin-Gruber connection. There are a number of these, but the, this Martin-Gruber anastomosis is more common on the right, and uh, it's probably largely a motor component. Some people have suggested that there may be a sensory or proprioceptive component, but essentially it, it's a motor component. So there are these variations that can exist, the Martin-Gruber anastomosis. We're left with a posterior cord, finally. That's five branches, as we said before. And here, these are the upper and lower subscapular nerves, the important thoracodorsal nerve, which I mentioned in the previous podcast in the axilla, and we've met that before, the nerve to latissimus dorsi, and then the major bits, the axillary nerve, and the continuation as the radial nerve. So these are all the posterior axillary and arm and forearm elements. Now, simply the upper subscapular nerve is pretty small, C5-6, and that enters the upper part of the muscle, subscapularis. We've gone through subscapularis in the previous podcast, which discussed the 
posterior wall of the axilla. The thoracodorsal nerve, which we've also gone through, C678, pretty large. It's medial and posterior to the vessels, and it runs down the back wall of the axilla, down to the lower end of teres major, entering the medial aspect of the lat dorsi muscle. So to actually job it, to injure it, you've got to really dissect on the medial aspect of the tendon of lat dorsi and get in to the front of subscapularis in order to, to actually injure it. So usually you can see it and stay away from it. It is, of course, as I've said, in danger in the depth of the axilla, particularly if you wrap the arm up and you move it laterally and around, and I like doing that for an axillary dissection, but if you pull it laterally at all, it flattens the axilla, and that actually puts it at slightly greater risk. One just has to be aware of that little point. The lower subscapular nerve, which is C5-6, is actually a bit larger than its upper subscapular nerve, and not surprisingly, it runs into the lower part of the muscle, and it will separately supply the teres major. The axillary nerve, which used to be called the circumflex nerve, not a bad term as, as a reminder, I guess, because it doesn't supply really anything in the axilla, is C5-6, and it runs, as we recall, through that space, the quadrangular space, which we've discussed in the previous upper limb podcast, we mentioned quadrangular compression syndrome. So importantly, it lies in direct contact with the humerus just below the shoulder joint. And at that level, the axillary nerve sends a twig to the shoulder joint and then it becomes an anterior and a posterior branch. The anterior branch winds around the humerus and it supplies the deep part of the deltoid and it has a few little cutaneous twigs. The posterior branch actually gives a motor branch down to the teres minor and it runs towards the edge of the shoulder tip largely as a cutaneous nerve. That's a cutaneous branch. That's the upper lateral cutaneous nerve of the arm. I also call that the regimental nerve because it covers the area where you'd have a regimental mark over uh, just below an epaulette in the army. So to think about it that way, and there are some muscular fibres of that, but there are a few. Its close connection, obviously, to the humerus and to the shoulder is the typical example of a dislocated shoulder, which is anterior and inferior. We'll be considering the anatomy, surgical anatomy of the shoulder in the next podcast. But uh, there's typically this um, uh, uh, can be injured, the axillary nerve, usually in neuropraxia, with a, a typical antero-inferior shoulder dislocation. Also, of course, a fractured um, a neck of humerus, uh, particularly the so-called anatomical neck, which is not common, higher than a surgical neck. Uh, it could theoretically be injured or in a pathological fracture of the humerus. The radial nerve um, is the continuation, of course, of the posterior cord, and that's got all the bits in it, C5, 6, 7, 8, and T1, so all the rootlets of the brachial plexus, and that's the largest branch of the entire brachial plexus. It runs in the back of the axilla on the latissimus dorsi. It passes out the lower triangular space, if you remember we spoke about that, below the teres major, the watershed really between the axilla and the arm. And its branches, the branches that it gives off, are actually very high, so that in a fracture uh, uh, of the uh, humerus, 
the muscles that are innervated by the radial nerve are still remain innervated even if the radial nerve's injured because uh, this is below where these branches are given. So it typically gives out a branch or branches to the long head of triceps and to the medial head of triceps by a nerve which runs along actually for some distance with the ulnar nerve on the medial side of the arm. And here there's also a cutaneous branch uh, which innervates the skin over the posterior aspect of the arm. That's the upper posterior cutaneous nerve and arm. Uh, so we have the posterior, lateral and medial aspects of the arm completely covered cutaneously like a sleeve. Um, there are a couple of extra things to add about the brachial plexus uh, and we said we'd talk a little bit about injury and uh, there the surgical anatomy becomes pretty important. A plexus injury for practical purposes can be supraclavicular, infraclavicular, and axillary, or also you can think of it as root, trunk, cord, and terminal. In trauma, the commonest examples of brachial plexus injuries are birthing injuries, where either there's, we're talking about childbirth now, where there's either, let's use some appropriate terms here, cephalopelvic disproportion or shoulder dystocia, those larger babies, the babies of diabetic mothers, for example. And we most typically, by pulling on the arm, which can happen in delivering a baby that's got shoulder dystocia, that's large for dates, or where there's CPD, cephalopelvic disproportion, the upper roots are typically injured. Those are C5, 6, 7. And they're affected in an herb or so-called herb Duchenne type palsy, which is much more common. And it's more common because that's the mechanism of injury there. And because of the myotomes, the hand adopts this so-called waiter's tip opposition with weakness of C5-6 elbow flexion and poor lateral rotation of the shoulder. This is all as we'd expect. Now, an injury, for example, to the lower rootlets of the brachial plexus, pulling those off the spinal cord, means that you've got to virtually lift the arm upwards pulling it or wrenching it upwards. And that's not a common mechanism of injury, obviously, during uh, birth. But it is a mechanism of injury in that motorcycle rider, where really the lower rootlets can be pulled off the so-called klumpke or klumpke dejerine palsy, which is largely presenting with hand uh, wasting. And what happens there is, of course, that, you know, your motorcyclist falls off the motorbike maybe with an arm in the ditch and the, the head and neck go one way and the shoulder stays still or something like that and it wrenches off the lower rootlets. So the mechanism of injury is different. But the anatomy is the same, obviously. Other types of these kinds of distraction injuries can include, obviously, any sort of industrial accidents, but skiing injuries and the like. And also, uh, this is a kind of thing that can occur in rock climbers. Now, the sort of imagery most commonly used to assess these beyond our clinical examination is a T2-weighted MRI, which will show those distraction meningocells, as I've said, and they're pulled off, off the spinal cord. Those are the irreparable brachial plexus injuries. And these tears are a sort of meningeal tear that surrounds the nerve roots with extravasation of CSF, which you see on a, a, a CT or MR myelogram. Of course, from our knowledge of anatomy, we know that the injury is proximal if the roots branches are involved 
And those, as I've said, I'm just reiterating again and again, are the long thoracic nerves, so the scapular winging, the dorsal scapular nerves, so the rhomboids and scapular bracing are out of action. Now, one other thing we mustn't forget is the attachment of the sympathetic nervous system. I've just blown my nose. Got the flu, not COVID, I hope. Anyway, the other thing we mustn't forget is the attachment of the sympathetic nervous system into the spinal nerves. Now, we have to briefly recall a little bit about the sympathetic nervous system, and I want you to look, for example, at any book on anatomy and look at the connection of the paravertebral sympathetic ganglia, the way they connect to the spinal cord. But let's go briefly through it. If I were to take out your brain and the spinal cord intact, the sympathetic outflow runs from the thoracolumbar region. Remember, the parasympathetic outflow, of course, is craniosacral. Recall our discussion last year in the Head and Neck podcast on the parasympathetic nervous system, the autonomic ganglia. So you can revise that if you need. But the thoracolumbar outflow is typically from T1 to L2. And if we were to look at the T1 to L2 at a cross-section of the thoracic spinal cord, we can see that these cells of the sympathetic system are concentrated outside the grey matter, about halfway between the posterior or sensory horn and the anterior or motor horn. And they're located as what we would call the intermediate cells, or more correctly, a lot of people call it the intermediolateral cell column. So we can see that as the spinal nerve forms ventrally, these cells from the level of T1 to L2 in that intermediolateral cell column provide the sympathetic outflow to the upper limb. That's just how the sympathetic nervous system works. And of course, the function of the sympathetic nervous system, I often ask uh, my, my students that, what's it do in the upper limb? Top of the list is it controls the precapillary sphincter. So it controls blood flow and temperature, but also it's important in sweating and piloerection. Uh, now, obviously, you know, a sympathectomy may be done for hyperhidrosis, excessive sweating. But uh, the important thing is that these sympathetic fibres running down from those intermediate cells or intermediate lateral cells, they run down with the ventral ramus. But firstly, they run through a very proximally located paravertebral sympathetic ganglion. And those little ganglia are part up and down of the sympathetic chain. Now, for those fibres going to the paravertebral ganglion, they are typically, well, not typically, they are myelinated, and they, of course, communicate with the ganglia. So we might call them white because they look white, they're myelinated, a ramus, which just merely means a fibre or tract, communicans, because they communicate. So a white ramus communicans is coming around through the ventral nerve root, but down into the paravertebral ganglion. Now, it doesn't, of course, have to synapse in that ganglion. If it doesn't, it can just use the ganglion as a relay station and can then run up and down the sympathetic chain, synapse somewhere else. In the head and neck, we remember there was the inferior cervical ganglion, which was combined with the T1 sympathetic ganglion. It was often called the stellate ganglion because of its shape. There was a middle and a superior cervical ganglion. Now, if the sympathetic fibre 
does synapse in that paravertebral ganglion, it then becomes a postganglionic fibre. Before that, it's a preganglionic fibre. But the postganglionic fibre is an unmyelinated postganglionic fibre. And it's then distributed through the joining of the dorsal and ventral nerve roots, what we call the spinal nerve. And then as that splits into a dorsal and ventral ramus, all of those postganglionic sympathetic fibres are then distributed through wherever, through the dorsal ramus, through the ventral ramus, into the upper limb to do what sympathetic nerves do, control the precap sphincters, control blood flow and temperature, a bit of sweating, a bit of piloerection during sympathetic stimulation, etc. By the way, because the postganglionic fibre is unmyelinated, the anatomists think that it looks a little greyish in colour. And so those are then called grey rami communicantes or a grey ramus communicans. Got it? Pretty basic. So imagine that the brachial plexus injury is pretty proximal. Why am I going on about this? Serratus anterior and the rhomboids are denervated. But also, if the connection with the paravertebral sympathetic ganglia is also ripped off, then that indeed is a very proximal injury and very likely to be irreparable or unrepairable. The effect will be a cervical sympathectomy. The hand is dry without any sweating and typically the patient will have a Horner's syndrome. Meiosis of the pupil because the sympathetic madriasis pupillary dilatation is lost. A partial ptosis because the sympathetic visceral drive to the levator palpebrae superioris muscle is lost, but the other muscles opening the eye still work. An anhydrosis or lack of sweating, as we've said. And often there may be the impression of a mild enophthalmus, that is the eye looks slightly turned in. Uh, so all of those things, if you remind yourself, we have discussed those in the head and neck, and uh, they do need to be uh, reviewed from uh, last year's podcast. I should point out the impression, by the way, of enophthalmos, I only learnt this recently, is only apparent rather than real. There's a, a little article on that in PLOS Med by Robert uh, uh, Daroff in 2005, for those interested. Enophthalmos seems more evident actually in animals, such as cats and rats and dogs, who've had a cervical sympathetic, but in humans... There's a comparatively narrow or small palpebral fissure which makes the eye look sunken in on the affected side, but it's artificial. The position of the globe in the orbit is actually unchanged, and these clinical impressions of a proximal, irreparable brachial plexus injury are usually supported, as I've said, by the mechanism of injury which we've spoken about, and also by CT or MR myelography, as I've already said. So here's a clear example where one's knowledge of the anatomy influences the examination of a brachial plexus injury. The other circumstance I've seen, uh, this very useful, is in the clinical examination of a patient with breast cancer. And I've mentioned this earlier, and I come back to it now, where astute examination can actually distinguish between a possible cervical spine metastasis and an infiltrative brachial plexopathy. And I have seen this with one patient was sent uh, to me with a former diagnosis, was sent by a very uh, esteemed uh, colleague 
who said this is a cervical metastasis and uh, sent it along with a negative bone scan. But real, you know, intense clinical examination showed that it was an anatomical infiltration, more likely, and it directed me to doing a, a brachial plexus MR. And I've also found it useful in lymphoma, which is another tumour type that can infiltrate the plexus. And these plexopathies, due to tumour, are generally mixed, they're motor and sensory, and they often will extend very far inwards, as far as the neural foramina. So some may actually be a feature of a radiation plexopathy for prior irradiation fibrosis, and that can be difficult to separate out as well. In the more distal injuries, although nerve grafting is feasible, restoration of shoulder and elbow function and control of phantom limb pain are still problematic. So this area is quite an interesting area, whether you're looking at injuries or tumour. And one last little caveat that I just wanted to mention, and that's based on the anatomy I've told you concerning, say, a cervical sympathectomy, which might, might be done for hyperhidrosis or uh, perhaps for reflex sympathetic dystrophy or severe Raynaud's syndrome or Crest syndrome, etc. There is a thing called the nerve of Kuntz. And we need to know that if we're looking at more complex anatomy. For those interested, it's an inconstant ramus which joins the second intercostal nerve to the ventral ramus of T1. It's part of the upper limb sympathetic outflow. But it's actually proximal to the point where T1 gives off a large branch to the brachial plexus. Um, so it can, as a ramus communicans, so it can be a cause, this nerve of Kunz, of a failed cervical sympathectomy, a source of sympathetic innovation to the upper limb that's quite proximal. And these fibres therefore don't ascend in the sympathetic trunk. Just a little bit of uh, a fine point. I was going to add here the osteology of the humerus, but I think that that's enough for today, and we'll pick up our next podcast discussion on the shoulder and add the humerus uh, if we can. Um, so thanks for listening, and I'll see you next time.